0: this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In Episode 5 of our Drugs season, Just Science interviews Jennifer Knudsen, Colorado's Traffic Safety Resource Prosecutor, and Glenn Davis, the Highway Safety Manager for the Colorado Department of Transportation. Listen along as Colorado's recreational marijuana legalization traffic experts discuss the law and operations of the existence of recreational marijuana and its impacts on the transportation sector. Jennifer and Glenn will discuss the post-legalization effects of marijuana on Colorado law enforcement, specifically focusing on driving and traffic topics. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan.
1: Hello, and welcome again to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Today, we are continuing our series on drugs. We're uh, talking today to some folks who are in a very unusual position, but I guess it's becoming more common. They are people who worry about traffic safety and transportation in Colorado, where recreational marijuana is now law, at least legal on the state level which is, I hope, something that we're going to explore is to how that works from a legal perspective, and two folks who have actually become kind of experts in the field with respect to understanding how law enforcement and the legal community is going to deal with this rather rapid change in, in law that's been occurring here in the last few years. Our first guest, and in no particular order, uh, is Jennifer Renee Knudsen, who is Colorado's Traffic Safety Resource Prosecutor working for the, the Colorado District Attorney's Council which represents the Colorado's uh, elected district attorneys. She graduated from the University of Denver with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and the University of Colorado School of Law with a Juris Doctorate. And uh, she has been working in this area for quite some time as uh, she's been a member of the Colorado DRE Advisory Committee and Mad Enforcement Awards Selection Committee, the Colorado Prosecutor's DUI Manual. She has produced and edited that, works on state and federal legislation in traffic safety issues, co-author of Strategies for Prosecuting DWI Cases, and much more. As well, we have Glenn Davis from the Colorado Department of Transportation, the Highway Safety Manager for CDOT, and the Highway Safety Office. His areas include impaired driving, police traffic services, motorcycle safety and speed enforcement and control. He uh, has served on the Colorado Post uh, Curriculum Committee, the Peace Officer Standards and Training Curriculum Committee, and has uh, 25 years of law enforcement service, retiring from the Littleton, Colorado Police Department, where he was a drug recognition expert at DRE and impaired driving enforcement coordinator before joining CDOT, as well as many, many other distinguished aspects of his career. Welcome, Glenn and Jen. Thanks for
2: having us. Thank you.
1: I'm going to start with you, Glenn, because I want to kind of start with kind of the experience on the ground about this. When is it that you moved from being an officer in Littleton to the CDOT? When was that? 2004. It was well before Colorado had uh, considered going to a, a recreational marijuana state. At that time, was there a medical marijuana statute in place in Colorado?
3: Yes, Colorado's had uh, medical marijuana since 2000. And I just want to uh, confirm one thing, John. Marijuana legalization in Colorado is not law. It's constitutional amendment.
1: I see.
3: So Amendment 20 so was the medical marijuana, and that, that really took place in 2000.
1: So how did it get expanded then to include a recreational was the amendment amended recently or how did that work
3: oh there was another amendment put forward in uh, 2012 and the voters passed that i think with like a 55 uh, percent pass rate and we started uh, recreational sales on january 1st of 2014 uh, we were the first government in the world to to take this on and i don't think any other government in the world was more
1: prepared than we were Okay, that's interesting. Did the legislature do an enacting piece of legislation as part of this? And, Jan, you're, you're more than welcome to, to chime in on those, those issues as well.
3: Constitutional amendment at that time, uh, is to get a constitutional amendment, you need 100,000 Colorado voters to put it on the ballot. They had those signatures. It was put on the ballot. It's a little bit more difficult to get something on the ballot like that now. And then once that was passed, it goes to the governor to sign into the Constitution, ratify it, and that was done. So the legislature didn't have anything actually to do with the constitutional amendment.
1: Did you notice much difference between the pre 2000 constitutional amendment and the post 2000 constitutional amendment as a law enforcement officer in terms of your experience with respect to traffic safety at that time? Was that a huge impact or was that something that you didn't really notice as much?
3: I didn't really notice it that much in 2000, and then I came to the uh, highway safety office in 2004. I did notice that there was going to be some changes about 2009 because the way to get a medical marijuana card was relaxed quite a bit, and we had a lot more people getting a medical marijuana card. So my office felt that there was a potential that we, had, we would have more people that potentially would partake and drive. So 2009, this office started to get pretty aggressive about the advertising and the awareness.
1: Uh, so you're saying that the in the, most of the 2000s, it was not considered as important an issue in the transportation side but you felt like you needed to do some more, I guess you would call it public health advertising since 2009. Would, is that the right way to talk about it?
3: Our awareness is traffic safety. So it was uh, to make people aware, because again, we, we thought we were going to have a bigger population of people that were going to be able to get a medical marijuana card. And we wanted to make people aware that you know, you've earned a medical marijuana card or whatever. You still do not have a right to drive high or you can't drive high. So we knew that population was increasing and we wanted to get ahead of it.
1: Is there a distinction in the law between medical marijuana and recreational still to this day? I mean, are there, Do you have more rights to a greater amount of marijuana at one time or different products because of, of a medical marijuana license, or is that now uh, relevant?
3: I might refer to Jen and I think somebody with a medical card can actually purchase more at one time than somebody who doesn't have a card.
2: And our laws continue to change. Some of the session amounts changed uh, recently. But one of the big distinctions between medical and recreational is the taxation. The different procedures for that are quite different. And then, of course, when we have tourists come in, there's kind of our recreational market where some of our medical market is more kind of a consistent type market.
1: But in terms of the transportation side, I assume it's consistent. If you're driving, then there's only a certain level of marijuana you're allowed to have in your system then, regardless of whether you're medical versus recreational.
3: Yeah, that's true. The state has a definition of of influence, but it's based on an anagram level. We look at it as a pyramid, but... Yeah, you're correct. There's no exemption if you're a medical user that you can have a higher level impairments, impairments, how the state looks at
1: it. So one of the issues here is how do you determine impairment? Both have certainly have a lot of experience on the DWI side of things, but a lot of what you might consider impairment might manifest very differently in alcohol versus marijuana. Is there a recognition in the law that there might be a difference in impairment just in terms of how it manifests to somebody?
2: The law in Colorado, we have two impaired driving provisions. One is for driving under the influence, and that is for alcohol, drugs, or a combination. The lesser, we count that as a lesser included offense, is what we call a DWAI, driving while ability impaired. And same thing, it it doesn't matter what is impairing you, the DWAI, if you're impaired to the slightest degree, that would be illegal in the state of Colorado. So when you ask about impairment, we really have to start with that initial observation, um, whether it be the officers or whether it be some sort of driving that is witnessed. And then we go through the stop, what is observed on the scene. And then kind of the last piece that we may have, and we do have in the majority of cases, is toxicology to kind of help us with that. But there's no magic number when we're talking about non alcohol drugs
1: that's interesting so is there a pattern with respect to impairments that you see in your experience is there a set of impairments is it something in terms of uh, just to break it down officer observation versus you know somebody's weaving on the road and their their actual behavior behind the wheel does it tend to be one or the other or both is there a bigger nexus between certain kinds of of manifestation and the impairment finding
3: When officers stop a car, you know, we've been asked before how many people get stopped for DUI or DUID, and the answer is really zero. People are stopped for a traffic violation. It's when the officer makes the contact that they actually start seeing the indicia that they decide to act on. But we do know that Colorado State Patrol keeps really good statistics about all of their DUID arrests. DUID in Colorado is driving the influence of drugs. And the number one violation they see is speeding. But we don't want to put officers in a position to say, well, you know, if they're speeding, it's marijuana or it's, it's whatever. It's really that violation, and then you start making your determination from the contact. And also with the marijuana, too, we find that uh, when people are tested, they may have marijuana in their system, but they may have marijuana in a combination with other drugs, too. We'll arrest any impaired person. And then with the use of our DREs, the officers that are trained in A Ride, Advanced Roadside, Impaired Driving Enforcement, In toxicology, we could find out exactly what that person was on.
2: So for us in court, just like Glenn said, when we're looking at that initial reason for the stop, there is a bunch of research that we can use kind of as nuggets to pull the whole case together. So one good source that we've had for many, many years is in the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and International Association of Chiefs of Police manuals. So in their standardized field sobriety test manuals, they talk about cues. And if you look at those cues, for example, one you mentioned could be weaving. It could be a variation in speed or maybe driving with your headlights off. Some of those do have a nexus, like driving your headlights off for people with alcohol, That could be a sign of mental impairment, right? But also with cannabis, for example, because of the way it works with pupils, if somebody has dilated pupils, they may be prone to driving with their headlights off as well. So that just gives us, again, one more piece to kind of throw into the totality of the investigation as a whole. And we can either use a drug recognition expert in court to talk about it or one of our forensic scientists who know a lot of the studies. And there are some correlation studies. Like Glenn said, our state patrol is keeping statistics, but some of our scientists, like Dr. Hartman and Dr. Hustis, have actual studies that talk about the reasons for stops. So very useful information to us.
1: It does sound a little qualitative. And I know that those studies are out there. I also know that there's a lot more work to be done to try to make those linkages better understood. How often is it that the toxicology is brought into court?
2: Since we know that, you know, a, a certain nanogram is going to be across the board impairment for every person, I think that is one reason why in almost every case it has become a critical piece of evidence because our juries. Our society, we're so used to, oh, oh, wait that's the illegal amount, right? So if we don't have one for marijuana, then it's contested. And then we do need the expert to go beyond just that number to talk about the studies and to make those links between what we do know from officers' observations as to impairment to what science we have it also makes things much more complicated because we have could have new officers, we could have new prosecutors, could even have new uh, scientists, and we're kind of expected by our juries to produce much more than we had before. And like Glenn said, most of these cases, I think, are poly-drug cases, so it's not just one. So we're talking about the effects of PNS depressants or alcohol plus cannabis or maybe two or three others. So it's become a huge deal. At least here in Colorado.
1: Yeah, and that can be very difficult to tease out. In some respects, it sounds like impairment is a key element there. I'm thinking at the next level or several levels, perhaps beyond, in terms of thinking about drug-related deaths. And it's almost always the case that you have multiple drugs on board. You might have marijuana, alcohol, and you might have you know some kind of opiate on board as well with somebody. And so it's almost always a multiple drugs that are involved there. And it's almost impossible to say well which one did what right i mean the the question really is whether the person is capable of operating that vehicle I suppose
2: yes and that's why we love our general statutes at least as of right now because we don't have to prove this specific drug and you know a big one that Glenn and I were just talking about was you know what happens in the body after someone passes away you know the THC analysis is much different and it gets much more difficult and so for us not only in traffic safety but then also on the data side it's really complicated Glenn, you made a
1: very strong statement earlier about Colorado being ready in a way that many other jurisdictions may not have been when recreational marijuana was legalized in 2012. And a lot of the things that I would associate with being ready are these very considerations. Tell me, what do you mean? What did Colorado put in place then and since that makes you feel like Colorado is in a good place with respect to the legal environment and how this is working?
3: Okay. And I wanna make clear I didn't say anybody else wasn't ready. I I wanted to say I think Colorado was more prepared. There was no government more prepared to do that. Okay. And I I think a lot of that is because our medical system was very robust. We had a medical a marijuana enforcement division already created that did policing on the the medical side. We had infrastructures that were put in place that got money from the marijuana users, a marijuana cash tax fund, which went back to the state that paid for the enforcement and also paid for some of what my office does to uh, awareness. So we had a funding source. We had a robust drug recognition expert program. We were able to use some of that marijuana cash tax fund to make that program greater and also advance more of the advanced roadside impaired driving enforcement. And it's a constitutional minimum here where some states it's constitutional, some law, but I support it 100% because it's my job to support the state constitution. So once it went, my feelings aside, I was in the enacting business. And we had already sure. established relationships with the marijuana industry and the marijuana advocacy. Because if I need to get an uh, awareness type of message somewhere, we found the best place for us to get it is in a point of use or a point of sale, and that organization can get us in there. We had also uh, worked with people that partake, and we had done some studies and surveys so we kind of knew how to hit our audience. We had advertisements, our drive high a DUI advertisements, we had those ready to go in 90 days after sales, not just for the people that partake, but we wanted the general public to know that the Highway Safety Office and law enforcement was aware of it, and we were going to adjust to the culture change.
1: So what do those advertisements actually say?
3: Our first ones were called uh, Drive High, Get a DUI. We still do that now. And we had those placed at point of sale, point of use. We had them in dispensaries and if there was a marijuana-type event. The first ones were basically we had print ads and we had commercials. And the commercials were usually somebody who you know, may look stoned We never mentioned driving, and there's not even any verbalization on it, but somebody's trying to light a a barbecue, and they they don't have the gas hooked up. And and the the tagline was, you can barbecue while you're stoned, but you can't drive high. Now, some people liked it, some didn't, but the main thing was to get the conversation going. We did that. The next year, we, we want to keep it fresh. We did some stunts, like we have a car that's wrapped with marijuana leaves, and we take it to a big location like a Rockies game or a Broncos game, and it fills up with smoke which is called hot boxing to the people that partake. People come around the car, the smoke's vacuumed out, and there's a sign that says drive high, get a DUI, and then we have people engage that audience and talk to them about it. And this year we're doing something very interesting and innovative. We're having something called the Join the Cannabis Conversation. We're touring around the state to meet with the age group of people that partake. We're also having some information online, and we want to know people's attitudes about driving, using marijuana, and where they're at. Because even though for all the advertisements we've done and the awareness, We still have people that are using and driving high. So we try and keep it fresh and do some every year. But this cannabis conversation we're doing is very innovative.
1: That's very interesting. It's very difficult, I would think, to really get a handle on exactly what the incidence is for marijuana. It's not like alcohol where the roadside test is very easy and quantitative. So do you all do any roadside toxicology testing for marijuana, or how do you approach the issue of trying to understand right there at the point of a stop what the level of marijuana might be on board with somebody?
3: We're not so much concerned about the level. We're concerned about the And our state statute does not allow a device to be used at roadside for anything other than alcohol. So our statute's a little outdated. And I'll let Jen talk about a a pilot project that we're working on with state patrol. But we've mentioned the SFSTs a couple times. And the Sandfield Sobriety Testing, which was designed in the 70s to detect people at 1.0 or greater alcohol, is really effective for that. And I think that if an officer is is highly skilled in it, they can also use the SFSTs and determine if the person cannot do divided attention maneuver. But I'm really not 100% sure that all of the officers that are doing the SFSTs are doing correctly. I mean, we can train them. We don't know. But I think some people may be missed. But we don't want them making arrests based on a device or anything of that yet. We want them making arrests based on indicia and impairment.
2: So first, we'll talk about saliva. The State Patrol got a number of devices from different manufacturers to try to test safety of use um, and then even compare the Results, and these are roadsides, these aren't, they're just screens, there's no confirmations. Right. To compare those with blood tests, we have not had a huge amount of people participate, but that is an ongoing. Pilot that we are working around across the state. And to add what Glenn said about SFSTs, we have to remember that, yes, those were validated using a certain BAC by the scientists, but they were created to detect impairment. So, therefore, we don't ask the officer, just like we don't do charging, depending on the specific drug. You know, every officer is supposed to do the investigation the same way every time because that officer is not going to have any idea if that person has three drugs on board or five drugs on board or what the impairing substance is. We want their observations as to the SFSTs generally, and there have been some validated studies to non-alcohol drugs, and we rely on those in court quite often as
1: well. Yeah, it is a difficult area because, as I've mentioned, the types of impairment can vary from drug to drug, right? And so what you might see with something that was based on blood alcohol might not be necessarily an impairment test that going to catch somebody who might be quite impaired, but with marijuana. The other thing that you will see, and it's interesting from your advertisement perspective, I don't know how much you've been able to test to see how well the messages are getting through. You know, some of the advocates are like, they would contend that, hey, if I'm a little high, I'm actually a better driver, uh, which is a very dangerous contention to make and certainly isn't research-based.
3: We did do a lot of research before we started this campaign, and we did find there's a significant amount of people in Colorado that partake that felt they drove better. Now, we absolutely know in this office that that's not true, but if that's their belief base, we have to go to that. So some of our ads are not just based on the danger, it's responsibility. We uh, found we had a lot of people, too, who were unaware that they could even get a DUI for driving with anything in their system other than alcohol, so that was a challenge, too. Now, there are recent studies that we have a real high awareness rate that people now know that they can get a DUI, but they we're still working on that demographic that thinks they drive better or doesn't have any effect on it, but we'll keep working on that.
1: So that perception still is out there, isn't it? <laughs> Do you know how this is impacted in terms of uh, other ancillary things? So. I personally would not want to uh, go to a barbecue with somebody who has gotten high, at least not using propane. That's very dangerous as well. Is there anything in terms of how enforcement is done outside of the transportation sector that has evolved here since 2000 or 2012?
3: If it's something that's about the regulated market, which is anything that goes on in a licensed facility, with if it's a grow operation, if it's a edible operation, if it's a sales, medical sales, that's highly enforced and highly regulated by the marijuana enforcement division. Most anything that goes on in those organizations, they take care of it, and they do undercover stings. And they recently found that one dispensary was overselling, and they they shut them down. As far as once it gets outside in traffic safety, you know, it's it's up to each individual law enforcement of, of how much resource resources and what they want to spend on it, what they want to do. I think the law can be confusing at times. When the first came out, each adult in the house could have six plants as long as only three were mature. Well, for law enforcement, how do they know which ones are mature? And are they supposed to take them? What if they got seven plants? Which ones do they take? So I think that's a patchwork that continues to work on. The Colorado Department of Public Safety and Law have a class that they put together called Marijuana 101. So it's just the basics for law enforcement about seizing plants. And 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 what is a dangerous situation, things of that nature. I think that's going to be
1: ever-evolving. Has the attitudes in terms of workplace drug testing changed? Is there much change in perception with respect to that in Colorado?
3: I can say for the state government, nothing did change. For someone like me, I would have to show indicia, and then I'd be required to to take a test. But the state can order certain sensitive positions like truck drivers, law enforcement, to take random tests, and, and they do that. I do know that some law enforcement agencies have lowered their standard on interviews. They used to want uh, no past drug use to last for years. They've lowered that to a year. So that's something's changing because they were running out of candidates.
2: Supreme Court also had an opinion that said workplace can still take action if somebody uses cannabis because it's a Schedule One and it's still illegal federally.
1: Right. It's actually quite uh, important to you all because the federal DOT does still have pretty stringent workplace requirements that go after things like commercial truckers and people like that, and those programs at least are continuing apace. Is there any difficulty with respect to how you all, in terms of what you're trying to do in CDOT and in transportation enforcement in Colorado, and what the federal DOT is doing from their perspective? Has that worked together reasonably well, or has there been some issues in terms of how that meshes? I can
3: tell you that my office follows federal DOT rules on everything. So even though marijuana is legal here, there's just some things it does not break through. Like it doesn't affect anything we do with DOT. We are, we're in complete compliance with all of their rules and standards.
1: And Jen, how about on the, on the legal side? Has there been any concern with respect to whether the legalities involved with the state versus the federal views on this thing are going to impact on Colorado?
2: Well, the thing that kind of stands out is now we're in a political season, right? And you will see that A lot of times, some of these politicians used to just say, you know, no to drugs, and they were pretty firm on it. And kind of what stands out now is because we have constitutional law that allows for certain amounts of possession – you will see that it's on the state's rights kind of issue. And I think a lot of our politicians today would go to bat with the federal government to protect that. Now, as far as you know, traffic safety or those kind of laws work together, you will see that a lot of our state officials will work hand-in-hand with federal officials because there are still some issues out there that you know our constitutional amendment didn't fix. I read something from New Mexico that said their illegal seizures, their drugs are coming from Colorado and not Mexico anymore. So there's still a lot that we probably aren't aware of and that we're working on. But certainly from the transportation perspective, I mean, that's the same thing. It goes back to SFSTs, to the DRE program. I mean, those all come out of the USDOT, as well as a number of grants that fund a number of things, including my program. But I don't see that there's a huge conflict there for transportation, at least. If you kind of get outside with different offenses, then there's a little bit more technicalities or or difficulties that need to be addressed.
1: So one of the things that's happening seems fairly rapidly in California is that the production and marketing of cannabis products has uh, evolved much more quickly than anyone imagined uh, in terms of price, in terms of the consolidation of the industry the idea that this was going to be kind of little mom-and-pop operations. seems like it's going by the wayside. Have you seen a change with respect to the production market, marketing of um, cannabis?
3: January 1st 2014 is where we saw a lot of change. It's advertised sure. very highly in uh, some you know, local magazines. There were a lot of licensees, a lot of small, small little shops, and some of those have consolidated and some of the bigger ones. There's several big sales places that have several establishments. So I I think you're seeing some of that, that the smaller ones are kind of going, the big ones are kind of uh, taking them over. We also see that edibles is very popular here, and it's kind of become any way to sell it just like it's sold with alcohol. They have St. Patrick's Day sales and things of that nature there has been some responsibility from the marijuana industry, though. When it first started, you would see people out on the street. They'd be flipping a sign and things like that. They stopped some of that, so, so they've worked hard to do it. But it's advertised very heavily, and it's very competitive how it's advertised.
1: Is there any restriction on the advertising like there is with tobacco?
3: There is as far as you know can't be on certain areas, can't be certain billboards, can't be within certain number of feet from a school or places like that. Some places that take periodicals and TV and radio some places won't take that on.
1: The expansion of the edibles, I think, raises a lot of interesting issues from your all's perspective. I mean, certainly the metabolism of an edible is very, very different than it might be from a product that was smoked. It also uh, raises the issue of maybe getting a little bit more in your system than you might realize, you know, because it takes a little bit longer for absorption. Have you all seen any changes with respect to the population with the expansion of edibles? that affects what you see in impairment or how these cases are manifesting?
3: I'm a retired DRE. I haven't done one for a long time. And that information would only be usually what we get from a, an arrestee or a user or consumer. So I don't know if we get that yep. from them. I, I do know that the state took a different look at edibles over the last couple of years. It can't look like a cartoon character or a fruit or something like that. And also anything that's an edible has to be scored in an individual serving. Has to have a mark on it that that's ten milligrams of THC because I mean you could buy a candy bar with ten servings and I don't know who can eat one tenth of a candy bar but but that's one thing they've done but there's a real opportunity there John for maybe some research in the future. Sure. And as far
2: as court goes, if we're lucky enough to get that sort of information, that's what I was talking about earlier. It absolutely comes into play. We have to talk about driving and that connection with different research, and then, or if there's a crash, and we have crash risk information, but certainly to teach our entire law enforcement population those differences between oral versus smoking, or even other you know, transdermal, and oftentimes it could be used in a couple of different ways, or as you noted and I noted earlier, uh, with a couple of different drugs. So, super important for us to know, but If you can imagine, right out of law school, you've never had a case before and all of a sudden this is your first trial and you have to learn all the science behind it and hope that we get a toxicologist there and that your officer is aware of those differences as well. Even for our DREs, it's important because... The arresting officer may see some things and then the DRE does a drug influence evaluation and maybe cannot call impairment. Well, that could be consistent with what we know of how the drug works in the body, but how do we get that across to, number one, the prosecutor and then the court and then maybe ultimately a jury is a whole new business.
3: I've never used an edible. I don't think Jen has either, but we know people that have. And if we need resources to talk to our DREs, we can go to our marijuana industry, and, and they will get us a bud tender that'll answer any question those guys want to ask them about what the effects were like and stuff like that. So I, I think that's a real good part of having a relationship with the industry, because one thing the state and the industry and the district attorney's councils around we do not want people out driving high. So they're good about giving us resources that we can learn from.
1: How does the constitutional amendment define cannabis or THC or Marijuana, and is there any evidence that you're seeing some of the uh, unusual kind of manufactured THC types uh, substances and, and THC like substances that are, are very much out there in the illegal market?
2: So that's complicated. <laughs> yes. We have definitions. That's why I, ask, I
1: only ask you the hard questions.
2: <laughs> there are definitions in the amendment, there are definitions in our different criminal codes, and then there are definitions that apply for drug in our definition of driving under the influence and driving while ability impaired. So, depending on the circumstance, you obviously have to make sure you find the corresponding definition that applies. I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but one issue that we have, too, is hemp, because hemp has a different definition. So, that kind of opens up a whole new category of labs to be testing concentrations and verifying, you know, what the actual substance is, and as you said, you know, we're seeing people having blunts or joints, and they might have fentanyl on top, they may have something else sprinkled in there, they may have bath salts or synthetic cannabis, which is kind of a whole new different world, and then our testing world is kind of changed, so a lot to think about in that question.
3: John, there is a distinct definition of influence in the DUI statute, and that's five nanograms or more of delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol.
2: That's for our permissible inference.
3: Right. So we do have a definition of that. But on the other hand, it doesn't define impairment. It only defines influence. So a nanogram is a billionth of a gram. And if you can think of a sugar packet as a gram, like so one billionth of that would be less And it does come into permissible inference. And when that statute changed, that also changed our DUI statute.
1: And it really goes to the heart, I think, of some of the debate that's still going on out there, which is what are we going to expect? You can imagine that legalization might lead to making things more legitimate. uh, As you mentioned, it seems like a lot less import from Mexico into Colorado of these products, which is probably a, a good thing from the perspective of violence and the nexus of violence with the illegal market. But on the other hand, you're also seeing some experience, at least, where the uh, use of THC in combination with more dangerous drugs at least is happening. Whether it's happening more or less, it's impossible to say, probably. I mean, what's your experience been since 2014 with respect to the overall highway safety picture in Colorado? Is it, has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? Or is it about the same? What's going on with highway safety in Colorado since the legalization? I
3: think that... Uh there was decisions made prior to legalization. There was not a lot of real good data kept on traffic safety as far as how people were charged and what the impairing substance was. That was recently changed by a state law. Even with our fatalities, I think a lot of people were solely tested. And if alcohol came back, that's what came back. So we've made a real effort to work with coroners and get better information about what people have in their system. So it has shown a spike, but some of that, I think, John, is because that we are getting better reporting. Our fatalities in the state have gone up three consecutive years, but I cannot say that that's all solely marijuana. We're a state that doesn't have a helmet law for adults on motorcycles, that does not have primary seatbelts, and has a texting law that requires law enforcement to uh, stop the person for another offense, not the texting. So the marijuana is just added in there. You know, who knows how many people we have driving that we don't contact. So we're working hard to get our data straightened out so we can get our baselines.
1: How much increase has there been in fatalities overall? Is it 1%? Is it 10%? How much is it?
3: The total for uh, 2017, we had 51 fatalities that we can attribute to a driver being 5 nanograms or above. So that's 8% of the state total. Now, the year before, it was significantly less. I don't have it in front of me, but again, every year, I expect it to be higher because our reporting's better. And just like I expect our DUI arrests, our DUID arrest to go higher, or marijuana arrests, not because there's more people using, which there may be, but we have trained law enforcement to detect this. So, you know, we expect more arrests. We expect to have some fatalities, but we want to keep it in perspective of where it's at. And even on those 51 that are or 8% of the total, I still would need to do an analysis on, on those. of how many of those also had other substances on there. They may be double counted. They may have had alcohol also. But about 8% of our total has a of our fatality total. Colorado has about 600 fatalities a year, 650 a year. We can show that has a marijuana tie-in.
1: I agree with you. I mean, it's impossible to get a good, reliable number in terms of correlation with marijuana at this point, I would think, or very difficult. I'm not no, impossible, very difficult. But I'm thinking about the overall traffic fatalities. So you're at 600 fatalities now per year overall, whether they're related to marijuana or not. Has that figure changed much in the last few years?
3: It's gone up three years in a row. We're always about 30% of all our fatalities uh, are uh, alcohol-related, 0.08 or above. And since we've been keeping this data, we've seen an increase in uh, people that have marijuana in their system, but they may also be in that other subgroup with the alcohol also.
1: So you're getting an uptick, but you're not getting a huge uptick. Easily it could be some other factors you really can't say.
3: You know, and and we're very aware of the memos that the uh, U.S. Attorney General sent to Colorado, the coal memo, which has been sent rescinded, but there's a responsibility for driving on there, so that's why we want to get real accurate data and we want to train our law enforcement.
1: Tell me what the coal memo was. Tell me the story behind that.
3: There's two memos came out from the United States Attorney to states that legalized marijuana. One was the Ogden memo, one was the Cole memo. And basically they said that the federal government would not take action against states that had recreational marijuana as long as the state had certain parameters, kept it in state, kept out of hands of youth, kept out of federal lands, and other public order crimes, one of which was driving. Attorney General Sessions has rescinded that with his own memo, but, but driving was an element.
1: That's all very interesting. I want to make sure that I've captured the main points that you all have in terms of kind of your experience and what you can share with the uh, audience for Just Science. Is there anything else that uh, we haven't covered you feel like we should discuss?
3: We'd just like to do a closing argument. (laughs) when a oh, state uh, takes us on it's it's important that they look at certain things and one of the things that if we had to do it over again we'd have been collecting data way before that this happened on marijuana and other drugs so we had our baselines it's also important for the state to identify funding sources because your law enforcement is going to need to be trained. Though some of them have the training, all law enforcement needs some training. If a state has a robust DRE program, it's important to look about parts of the state. Do you have enough DREs? Do you have the right ones? It's important also, I think, to make relationships with the industry because they can get you where you want to go and agree on a, on a theme and also the awareness to the public and work with other state agencies so that everybody's kind of on the same page of what they're doing. It's a, something that was chose for us, but we're going at it real hard, and I think we have a real opportunity to get ahead of this before it becomes a real problem. And we also have opportunities, if certain things happen, that we can maybe do some more research because there has not been a lot of research done on impaired drivers' marijuana because it's a Schedule One. Jen?
2: I guess... You know, if we're looking at it broadly, we talk about traffic safety with the three E's, sometimes might hear thrown around, so engineering, education, and enforcement. And CDOT has the engineering piece down, other than we have so many people moving to Colorado, we can't, you know, fix things fast enough on our roadways because there's so many people. As far as enforcement, exactly what Glenn said, the voters spoke so now we're trying to do the best we can with what we have. I guess the last thing I would say, which goes to education and enforcement from the prosecution piece in these cases, is that we know we have officers making arrests. for There's a crash, fatality, or bad driving in general. There's a huge misunderstanding about a per se level. We don't have a per se level. Our, our laws are, as I said, it's Illegal to drive in Colorado if you're impaired by any drug, alcohol, or combination to the slightest degree. So instead of a per se for marijuana, we essentially all sides agreed upon a five nanogram amount for a permissible inference, which is tantamount to a jury instruction, which allows the jury to say if somebody is at five nanograms or more of delta nine THC. And that's important to note that it's spelled out. It's the Delta 9 THC. It's not hydroxy. It's not a different type of THC. Our jury then can say, without considering the other evidence, this person can be guilty of DUI. Well, that has made our cases even more complicated, but in some cases, decent. But even in the the 23 nanogram case or the 49 nanogram case, the jury could still say, not guilty, and they don't have to follow that jury instruction. So just educating everyone in general has been a, a huge undertaking, and I guess maybe that's why we're here today, too, to help kind of spread the word. But otherwise, it's it's challenging, and like Glenn said, with data, I think we'll learn even more as years to come.
1: I want to ask you all one more question because I'm thinking about it from the perspective of all the people uh, across the country. In fact, we get a lot of international folks listening as well. I think there'd be a lot of interest in knowing what uh, Marilyn Eustace and uh, the other uh, researchers have in terms of correlation studies. Do you all have a resource that you look at in particular that you refer to on that uh, that we could point people to? Or what's the best way for people to come up to speed on Colorado's view with respect to the research and what's valuable?
2: Well, I definitely think anything with Houston's name on it is very helpful. Her more recent studies that she did with Hartman and then the one correlation study she did with Dr. Richman and Chuck Hayes at IACP, they actually took over 300 drug influence evaluations from across the country. And mind you, this is kind of before the higher concentrated THC hit the market. But These are marijuana-only cases, which is important because we don't get a lot of those. You know, what are some of the best indicators? And they said, you know, finger-to-nose is a great test for cannabis, lack of convergence. And then they looked, too, to see what the reasons for the stop were. And I believe in that case, speeding was also uh, the number one reason for that. They also have, you know, the Iowa study, um, studies where they went into and used the simulator in Iowa where they talked about standard deviation of lane position or weaving, which is what our officers see a lot of the times. Those were great cases. And I guess just to remember, because there is actually a lot of research out there, but you have to look at each piece of literature with an open mind and say, you know, is there bias here? How many participants were there? What can we learn from it? And A lot of times we see that sometimes council will spin the research and say this is why it's actually safer to drive on marijuana. That's not actually what the study says, but, you know, we have to look at it. There may be one finite piece or one nugget that we get out of that literature, but we have to look at it with an open mind and, and learn from it.
1: Well, that's very good. We'll make sure to point folks to some of those resources so that at least they have a starting point from which to, which to work, especially Marilyn Eustace, who is a friend of the program. We have, we have a lot of folks who uh, know her work here at RTI. So today we've had Jennifer Renee Knudsen and Glenn Davis from Colorado talking to us about the uh, impact on the uh, transportation uh, sector with respect to the uh, use of uh, legalized marijuana in Colorado. You all have a very unique perspective, uh, one of the most mature perspectives that we've seen in terms of having experience. We appreciate you very much being on Just Science. Thank you so much.
0: Next week on Just Science, Randy Hanslick discusses the current state of pathologists and the burden that drugs place on those who hold these positions.